In a small valley just past Hermanus, known for fine wines and fruit, horse rides and gorgeous dams. The veiled societal issues of poverty, illiteracy and alcohol abuse amongst those who worked the farms remained just out of sight and mind. That was until a spate of burglaries and assaults exposed the dark underside of reality, with residents fearing that they would be the next ones to be hit by what or who was only initially known as the Phantom. Then, a young girl went missing. 18 months later, when all hope was almost lost, a shocking discovery would be made, and this revelation would change the trajectory of two young girls' lives forever. This story will enrage you. The story will break your heart. The story will open your eyes to the evil that lives amongst us. This is Verencina Renzi Schrauder's story. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Today, we're traveling to Himmel and Arda, an area home to many vineyards and known for the fine wine and fruit it produces, located by the city of Hermanus in the Western Cape. In Old Dutch and Afrikaans, Himmel and Arda translates to heaven and earth. With over 20 wine producers, it is a quiet but productive area, with majority of the properties being owned and operated by families. Thus, everyone knows everyone, from the families that own the properties to those who work the lands. Speaking of those who work the land, I want to explain a little bit more about how the dynamics that exist today came to be, as I feel it will serve to create a better context and understanding of the case itself. Without context, some of the things I'm about to tell you may very well confuse you, seeing as how it is virtually impossible to be able to understand such a different situation and culture without any insight into how it came to be the way that it is. So although currently money is the form of payment that is provided to farm workers, this wasn't always the case. My fellow South Africans, particularly those from the Western Cape, will know that I am referencing the DOP or the TOT system. So for those of you who are not aware of the DOP system, let me break it down quickly. Just before the turn of the 19th century, back around the 1830s, farm owners would often pay their mostly coloured farm labourers with sacks of cheap wine, called DOPs, produced on the farms that they worked on, primarily in the Western Cape. This system was used as a means to control and obtain consistent labour. 
by establishing not only unhealthy working conditions, but also a manipulative system that would have massive societal ramifications in the years to follow. It was a system of power that the predominantly Afrikaans individuals, the landowners, used in order to secure themselves as the power holders, whilst establishing dominant commercial farms and businesses. The system enabled the unequal balance of respect, resources and power, which was only intensified during apartheid in the years to follow. So at this point, you may be like, okay, Bella, so what exactly is your point here? Well, besides to tell you about what the past of my country was like, it forms the fundamental basics to understanding how and why the individuals within today's case exist in the way that they do. The laborers under the system struggled to escape as they had no other options. And so the consequences were an increased level of domestic abuse, alcoholism and community developmental issues. Without an actual proper income, there was an inability to change their daily lives. And so the unhealthy cycle began. Another massive byproduct of this system are the high levels of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in the Western Cape. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is a condition that arises when a mother consumes alcohol during her pregnancy. Alcohol use during pregnancy is a leading cause worldwide of preventable birth defects and developmental disabilities in children. FASD, although 100% preventable, is said to affect around 3 million South Africans, according to aware.org. South Africa has the highest FASD prevalence rate in the world of between 6 to 29% as of 2017. According to research which the FASD task team of Stellenbosch University conducted, for every 1,000 babies born in the Western Cape province, 55 are born with FASD, with communities such as Wellington, Friedenburg and Saldana having the highest recorded instances. These are also rural communities where farming and vineyards are quite common. The effects of FASD are irreversible and can range from physical complications to behavioural and intellectual developmental issues. There are, however, organizations like the Pebble Project, an educational trust that focuses on the upliftment of farm workers' children in the Western Cape, who have focused their attention on those whose lives are affected by FASD. Recent studies showed that 83.1% of farm laborers are also regular drinkers. And so the cycle continued over the years and greatly impacted the community in many unhealthy ways. Just one action and one system led to the breakdown of cohesive society, with alcohol dependency and oppression being the main role players. And although this system was officially outlawed in 1960, the ban was only enforced in the 1990s, and the actual law that outlawed it was passed in 2003. But there are still cases as recently as 2009 where wine farm workers have been reprimanded 
for giving their workers cheap wine. As I mentioned, the implications of this system are still felt in a multitude of ways to this day. And so we pivot to Himmel and Arda, the picturesque valley which was quite a rural area with farming and vineyards taking precedence as the main activities of the landscape. The peace of the valley was promptly disrupted as a series of housebreakings and assaults began with fears that households were being watched. Watched by initially an unknown assailant, a person or creature, as some of the farm workers believed, that was referred to only as the Phantom. This name was given due to the fact that this person or creature would seemingly disappear into thin air, untraceable. Incidents would occur and the police would be called, but by the time they had arrived, the figure was gone. Many farm workers also believed that this assailant was a shapeshifter who could turn into a cat or dog when they wanted to go unnoticed. Over the weeks and months to follow, the phantom would terrorize the residents, instilling fear in many and even causing some to move out of the area for their own peace of mind and safety. A farmer's wife had later stated that her house had been broken into three times. On one occasion, her young daughter had been alerted to the intruder's presence by the smell of something like a wild animal. Her husband was unfortunately then assaulted by the phantom, however he did survive, and luckily herself and her children escaped without harm. It was just off of this same farmer's property that a shocking discovery would later be made. And in a Scooby-Doo turn of events, it would later be determined that the Phantom was actually Johannes Hansi Moes. Even though his identity was revealed, the enigma of the Phantom remained, and local farm owners were convinced that Mutti had a role to play. So, what exactly do we know about Johannes Hansi Moes? Well, not too much actually, but let's get into it. Johannes was adopted and he lived on a farm in Himmel in Arda with his adoptive parents, Hansi and Maria Moes, who were employed by the farm manager. During his childhood, he had attended the local school. However, he had later dropped out and he had begun to work on the farm. Everyone in the area liked him and they thought that he was a really good young man. At the time of dropping out of school, he was around 16 years old and he was described as a sharp, bright youngster who was quick to learn and was always a step ahead of everyone else. After the death of his adoptive mother Maria, things began to take a turn for the worst though. It was also during this time that he became aware of his biological mother, Connie Mars. During the years to follow, there were consistent rumors and talk about how he had a tactical or been involved in some shady activity, but the charges were always either dropped or never laid to begin with. 
In one incident, he had held up his girlfriend Rose as well as other members of the home with what was later discovered to be a toy gun. He had laughed when the police had arrived after his girlfriend had run to the farm owner's home to let them know what was happening. In his mind, this was all just a game. During the years that followed, it's unclear exactly when, where or how he had met Katrina Davids, but the pair had had a child together, Eunicia. However, Katrina Davids had disappeared. Now, where exactly Katrina had disappeared to, we don't know, even to this day. But personally, I doubt that she will ever return. Shortly after the child's birth, Johannes was arrested for the sexual assault of a 10-year-old girl. But in November of 2003, he would escape police custody. Yes, you heard me correctly. He escaped police custody. And this is where his reign of terror as the Phantom began, as he continued to evade the law for the next few years. He had grown up in the area, and so this vastly aided him in eluding capture, despite multiple manhunts by trackers, dogs, and even helicopters. He would move around at night, scaling the surrounding mountains in order to enter the areas of Stanford and Hawthorne in Hermanus. He would also travel along as well as across the rivers and streams so that he did not leave a scent or a trail for the dogs to pick up on. He survived off of the food he had stolen from various homes and farms during his burglaries. The police had a photo of his face and flyers were constantly distributed around the area and surrounding areas. One such batch of flyers were given out at the Deep Khat Primary School, which was attended by all of the children of the workers of the various wine farms in the valley. On a side note, this school is over 100 years old and educates around 60 children from grade R to grade 7, with only two teachers and a single teaching assistant. But I digress. This also happened to be the school that Verencina Renzi Schroeder attended. Verencina Schroeder, known to most as Renzi, was 12 years old at the time. She was a soft-spoken, kind girl who loved playing sports and spending time with friends. She had lived on the farm her whole life and she had a close bond with her family. She later recalled on the Friday prior to her abduction that a police van had arrived at the school and on the flyers that they had brought, she had seen the face of the man who would forever alter her life. The policeman had handed out a flyer with the face of a man who was wanted. Renzi and her fellow pupils were then told to be careful and not to walk around after dark or alone as there was a dangerous man on the loose. That weekend in December of 2005, Renzi and her family were at home on their deep hut farm in the Himmel and Arda Valley. They were fast asleep when there had been a knock on the front door. Renzi's stepfather Daniel had gone to open the door and when he had, he was met by a figure wearing a balaclava. 
Before he could shut the door, the man had placed his foot in the way. This man had then proceeded to push his way into the home. At this point, the entire family, her mother, herself, and her brother Dino, who was seven years old at the time, were awake, and they had come to see what the commotion was about. Her stepfather had then told the man to take whatever he wanted, but just to not hurt the family. He also told the man that he recognized him. This could have been because of the fact that this man was his cousin's child. The man responded that he did not want anything from the family and he did not plan on hurting them. However, he then turned his gaze to Renzi. He then told them that he just wanted Renzi to show him where his stepfather, whom he was looking for, lived on the farm. Yeah, in the middle of the night. Sounds legit. Her mother, Augusta, terrified and crying, pleaded with the man to please bring her daughter back. And with that, he had forced Renzi outside. He was also brandishing a pipe that he had concealed to appear as a gun. He then told her parents to get under the bed and stay there, otherwise he would shoot them. The last thing Renzi had seen as she had turned to look back at the home was her mother standing by the door. Her stepfather had come running after them after he spotted them further down the dirt road. However, Johannes had then turned around and said to him, if you don't turn around, I'll hurt her and it'll be your fault. Terrified, Renzi, not even a teenager yet, had been led away. Her stepfather had turned around and he had run to a neighboring farm in order to call the police. By the time anyone arrived though, the pair were long gone. Barefoot and in the complete dark, Renzi walked with Johannes. After walking through orchards, past a fence and through more vegetation, they had stopped by a river and Johannes had proceeded to sexually assault her. The first of what would be many times. He had then placed the balaclava over her head in an attempt to hide the location of where they were headed to. She was then led over a stream over more thick vegetation until she arrived at their final destination. A house? A cave? No, an underground dugout. Not a bunker, a dugout. So the initial dugout that she was brought to was too small and so Johannes had then made another one right next door to it. It was around two meters deep and three meters wide. Johannes had created the space using sheets of corrugated iron to support the roof, branches and animal feed bags for the walls and he had covered the entire structure in branches and vegetation making it seemingly impossible to spot. Inside, there was a three-quarter mattress, as well as a gas container that was connected to a little hot plate. I cannot even begin to fathom how claustrophobic and terrifying this dark space must have been. Renzi had then asked him if this is where he lived, 
He didn't respond, but instead he told her to get into the hole. As she entered, she immediately noticed that there was a little girl already sleeping in there. The child could not have been older than a toddler. She then asked Johannes if this was his daughter, and he had said yes. When she had asked about the child's mother, he had then proceeded to tell her that she worked on a fish farm, and she was not in the picture. Meanwhile, a short distance away, back in Diebrat, Renzi was reported as kidnapped on the 27th of December at the Caledon police station. Johannes was instantly named as the kidnapper and the search had begun. Police officers, farm owners and farm workers had all banded together to search the valley for this man and the girl that he had kidnapped. After having a few drinks, Johannes had then asked her if she recognized him or knew who he was. And she had actually realized that he was the man that she had seen in the police posters just the previous week. But she also realized that it was probably safer not to disclose this, and so she had told him she didn't know who he was. He had then proceeded to introduce himself as Hansi Moes. It was clear from the moment she arrived at the final destination, that hole in the hillside, that Johannes only saw Renzi as a means to an end. Someone to look after his daughter and someone to take care of his needs. Upon her arrival, he basically referred to her as his Heisfro, which in Afrikaans basically means wife. She was only 12 years old. She had later said, I never wanted to be his girlfriend. I didn't even like him. But that did not stop him though. He would assault her whilst the toddler slept. If she refused because she was tired or felt unwell, he would physically punish her. It was also during this time that she would start her menstrual cycle and thus she was forced to use rags every month. Both girls were also forced to use a chamber pot to relieve themselves. She later described herself as being like a dartboard where he'd throw knives at her and when she ducked, he would tell her not to blame him if she got hit. Every night, she would close her eyes and pray to God for him to protect her and for her to see her family again. Every day, she would ask him when he would be taking her back home and every day, he would reply and say, tomorrow. One morning, she woke up and he had her hand in his. He had pointed to the calendar that he kept and he had told her that it was her birthday. She was 13 years old. He knew a lot more about her than she thought and he told her that he had been watching her, her daily routine, what she had worn on a particular day and the way that she interacted with her family and friends. The house that they lived on had been on the outskirts of the farm, in a far quieter area, thus the perfect target for Johannes to stalk and monitor. As the days turned into weeks, Renzi eventually stopped asking when she would be taken back home as these conversations would always end in physical abuse. 
If she failed to do what he wanted, he would lash out. On one occasion, he had actually cut the clothes from her body and she was left unclothed for an entire week. She thus quickly learned to keep quiet and obey Johannes. She would later state, I always listened to what he said. I did what he asked and I tried to be good. That's what kept me alive. Although in the back of her mind, she often thought about running away, especially during the points in the day when Johannes would leave her and the toddler alone in the hole. Whilst they waited for him to return, they would also try to see a bit of the sun that poked through some of the holes in the plastic above them. At night, on occasion, they would be allowed to sometimes come outside. Another reason she never ran away was that Johannes had threatened her family. But besides these threats, probably the biggest factor that stopped her from running away was the fact that she had grown so attached to this little girl who was so very dependent on her. And even though she was in the most horrific situation, her heart felt for this little girl, the daughter of her kidnapper, whom she felt as though she just could not leave. That alone speaks volumes about the kind of person that Renzi was. The relationship between the two girls was not always great though. In the beginning, they really did not get along. It was bad, I mean, to the point that Eunicia, the toddler, would lash out at Renzi whilst she was being beaten by Johannes. Johannes, however, would barely lay a hand on his own daughter. He would only discipline her if she had done something naughty or if she was making a loud noise. Eunicia was described by Renzi as being very wild in the beginning. For this reason, Renzi had struggled to connect with her at first. One can only imagine how long Eunicia had been living in this type of surroundings with Johannes. Her experience was thus only shaped by the things that she had learned directly from him which I'm assuming could not really have been the greatest. Once Renzi had spent a little bit more time with the toddler, she grew very close to her and she saw her as a baby. As the weeks turned into months, it was soon the anniversary of her abduction. The police were unfortunately no closer to any leads and Johannes was only growing more comfortable in his surroundings. Her beatings became more regular, and Renzi would even be sleeping at times when Johannes would wake her up by burning her legs with a lit cigarette. Johannes at this point must have also started to run out of income, or rather a way in order to get food. Up until this point, they had been an old man who lived on the farm quite close to the dugout, who would on multiple occasions during the week go to the shops and buy some things for Johannes. 
Onlookers would notice him coming home with items like cooking oil, biscuits, and oddly often newspapers. Only in hindsight did that particular point seem suspicious, as this man did not strike others as someone who was particularly fond of reading newspapers, or someone who would buy newspapers to begin with. The man would then whistle when he was outside the hole, and Johannes would go out to meet him. The man had also, however, seen Renzi on multiple occasions. Johannes had just told him that she was his eldest daughter, but he had said nothing. Renzi recalled how he was never scared or worried, but instead he laughed at what was being written about him, and he said that it was all lies and the police could never catch him. Besides the newspapers, there would also be alcohol, sometimes more alcohol than food. At first, they were also ready to eat cooked meals along with some biscuits, but more often than not, the food was meant solely for Eunicia, not Renzi. And every time Johannes drank, Renzi was forced to drink with him. He would often become abusive and aggressive whilst he was drunk, and the next day when he was sober, he would apologize only after his daughter would say that it was him who had caused Renzi to look the way that she did. Renzi never gave up hope that she would be rescued, However, there were many times when she thought that she was going to die in that hole. During this time, although she heard voices and animals right by the hole, she was forced to remain silent. Fifteen months had passed and the police were no closer to finding her or Johannes. And at this point, to be honest, they felt as though she probably was no longer alive. Without any leads, the police had then offered 100,000 rand for any information that would lead to the arrest of Johannes. Around this time too, Johannes was leaving the hole on fewer occasions. Food was also becoming more and more scarce. When he would go out, he would sometimes bring back a very small amount of food, not for Renzi though, just for his daughter. Although Johannes had been on the run before, this time it was different as he had two young children to almost look after. And although he did not seem too concerned with Renzi's well-being, he did care deeply for his daughter. So without any food, the children were forced to drink sugar water and Johannes would bring them snails. Yes. I said snails. Renzi would then remove the shells of the snails and they would be fried or cooked and eaten. However, this French-inspired cuisine did not sit well with Eunicia, whose little body was still developing and thus needed nutritious, solid food. She soon became unwell. All these two young girls had to consume for a week was sugar water. During this time, unbeknownst to the children, but more than likely known to Johannes, the local farm owner David was bulldozing and preparing the land around the dugout for riverbeds. On that Friday in March, the construction team left for the weekend, 
If they had continued with their work, this case would have taken a far different turn. The following day, that Saturday, Johannes left the hall. He would never return. His reign of terror would soon come to an end. That Saturday, after he had left the hall, along his journey, he had acquired and consumed quite a bit of alcohol. He eventually ended up at Susan Mentor's home, a fellow farm worker on Nuvapos Farm. Around 2am in the morning, he had knocked on their door. When they hadn't answered, he had then knocked on their window. It was at this point that they had told him they would not be letting him in. And so, instead of leaving, he had broken the window and entered the property. He then began to talk about Sangoma's magic. He had then also asked for a drink. Susan, getting an idea, had then poured him three glasses of wine. He had polished these off and he had immediately passed out. When he had, she had run to the farmhouse, she had alerted the owners, and they had called the police. During the time that Susan was gone, Johannes had woken up and attempted to flee. However, the community members were not having it, and thus they had used some force and detained him. On the 4th of March 2007, Johannes Hansi Moers, who was 31 years old at the time, was arrested by police. The reward of 100,000 rand was apparently paid to multiple individuals within the community. After his arrest, he had then led police to the banks of a dry riverbed on the farm, the area where the dugout hole was located. It was at this point that he also broke the news to the police that there were actually two girls instead of one. The other being his daughter. After leading police to the general area, and after almost an hour of searching, eventually the hidden spot was located. It turned out that this hole was hidden in plain sight all this time, several meters from a pear orchard. After removing the branches and discovering the dark hole, investigative officer Captain Kenneth Speed, amongst others, had called out into the deep black space. There was no reply. Inside, the two girls had remained silent, terrified of being discovered and facing Johannes's wrath. The psychological hold he had on both girls was evident. They then decided if they got Johannes to call out Renzi's name that perhaps she would respond. After getting Johannes from the Bucky and asking him to call out for Renzi, a soft whisper was heard. It was illegible at first, but the whispering continued with each repetition of Renzi's name. Soon, two pairs of feet appeared, a young girl's and then a much smaller pair, as if the child was sitting on her lap. The onlookers were in disbelief. Hansi was then told to call Eunicia, his daughter, and soon after she was pulled from the hole, kicking and screaming as she did not want to leave. Once she was out of the hole and safe, 
Captain Kenneth Speed then reached out his hand to Renzi. Although he had convinced her that she was safe, that Johannes had been caught, she was terrified and she also refused to come out. Her main reason though is that she didn't have any pants on. This was yet another psychological ploy by Mowers to ensure that she would not run away whilst he was out of the hole. Captain Kenneth, however, made a plan, and after giving her his coat, she had then emerged from the hole. After 18 long months, Renzi was finally free. Both children were ashen-faced, and they spoke in hushed tones. Both girls would continue to speak in whispers for a short time afterwards, as they were not used to being able to speak at a normal volume. And after not having eaten for a week, they were then given sandwiches and juice. The anti-family violence and anti-child abuse unit arrived and the children were then taken for medical assessments and counselling. With Johannes finally being caught, it was time for his trial to commence. At the time of the trial, the Whisper Fund was created by a local woman, Jennifer McKenzie, in a bid to raise money for the two girls' rehabilitation and education. Jenny would go on to play a vital role, especially in Renzi's life, in the months to follow. During his trial, Johannes Mowers was often dressed in a tracksuit when appearing in court, and he smiled whilst gazing around the courtroom. There were altogether 41 charges that were brought up against him. Johannes Moers pleaded guilty, and in July of 2008, he was sentenced to life imprisonment, plus an additional 211 years behind bars, for 28 charges, including the rape and abduction of a minor. His other charges included four charges of rape, one of attempted rape, 16 counts of housebreaking, two charges of abduction, one of kidnapping, malicious damage to property, robbery with aggravating circumstances, and two counts of the illegal possession of a firearm, and these would all run concurrently with his life sentence. He is currently incarcerated and working as a cleaner in the medium section of the Haldestrom Correctional Center between Villiersdorp and Caledon. According to Simpiwe, spokesperson for the Department of Correctional Services, Mowers will be considered for parole in 2033. Factors that will play a role in him possibly being granted parole include whether he has completed rehabilitative programs during his incarceration. In 2013, he was classed as a medium risk offender. But, I mean... Is that classification an accurate representation of the man that Johannes is? Well, let's do a Bella deep dive into the potential motives that led to these horrendous actions. So the thing is, right, because Johannes pleaded guilty, he was never psychologically assessed. All of those involved in the case maintained that throughout everything, he showed no remorse for his actions. He thought of the entire string of events as a game. It's no secret that Johannes was intelligent, 
but he was also manipulative. He used his knowledge of the area to his advantage, able to spy and later break into homes, almost undetected. He would walk over mountains in order to not be recognized, and he would cross rivers and streams so that the dogs would lose his scent. One of the investigators tasked with tracking him down said that he was one of the most ingenious people he had ever tracked. He had hiding places all over Hermanus that were later discovered. From a two-man tent in sand by, hidden in a bushy area and covered with branches, to an abandoned green and blue house in Moonlit Bay with a worn mattress and burnt-out candles. He used to walk kilometers between these different hideouts, covering his face in clay to avoid being recognized by the locals. His desire was to exist in the darkness, watching but never being seen. The community were definitely divided on their opinions of him. Those who had known him as a youngster were convinced that he could not be behind such atrocious acts, whereas others were terrified of him. His own biological mother, Connie, I mentioned her earlier, believes that he should not be punished for a long time, and that he should consider writing a book. Um, yeah, maybe not. Oh, and on the note of Connie, she also dropped one last bombshell. Johannes apparently had two other children, a son, who was 19 years old at the time, and a daughter, who was 13 years old at the time. Yeah, I'll let you process that whilst I continue. In January of 2006, yes, whilst Renzi was being kept in the hole with his daughter, Johannes had allegedly assaulted a 22-year-old girl. He had then taken her phone and he had made phone calls to the police, taunting them that they would not be able to catch him even though he was back in the valley having a party. Like I previously mentioned, everything to him was a game. A game about control and evasion. And that was what he thrived off of. Renzi was not his first victim. And if he was never caught, she would have probably not been his last either. I cannot speak to his developmental years as I do not have further information in that regard, but judging from his behavior and actions, every crime he committed centered around power and control. The fact that his victims were often much younger than him also provides insight into possibly his sexual preferences, or just the fact that he was only able to successfully dominate those much smaller and more vulnerable. Either way, he saw his victims as conquests, as part of his game. Within the whole, his domination and control of both children extended so greatly that even in his absence, there was no chance of them wanting or trying to escape. With Renzi, although he often used verbal force, he would also resort to physical force in a bid to get what he wanted out of the situation. And the thing is though, although those who commit sexual assaults may have a diagnosable psychological disorder, there is no such disorder that causes someone to commit a rape. 
It's impossible to really know what the motives behind his actions were. But what we can conclude is that with each successful attack, escape or evasion of consequences, his confidence grew. Although we may never know exactly what turned Johannes into the man he became, we do know that power and control drove him and a lack of compassion for his victims sustained him. Johannes also expressed a lack of empathy towards not only Renzi, but in a way his daughter, forcing her to exist and grow up living in a hole. He did what he did with no remorse or concern for the consequences, especially the ramifications of his actions on the lives of the two young girls he held captive. So most importantly though, what has become of the two girls whose lives were forever impacted by this man? After spending about two years in a children's home after her counselling, at around six years old, Eunicia was fostered by an amazing couple who would later adopt her after a year. In the beginning, she was always slightly wild in a sense, running instead of walking and always slightly bent over. The impact of her early years was evident. Initially, the family didn't know her story, but after a few months later when they found out, they agreed that it did not change the way they felt about her. With this family, she had the opportunity to grow, flourish and succeed as a beautiful young girl. She began to do extremely well in school, had a bubbly personality and loved sports, especially long distance running and dancing. She even went on to dance at a big concert at the Baxter Theatre. She also officially changed her name to Nina. She began to regularly attend counselling with her new family at least once a month, but she was quite okay with her history and her past. She didn't remember much consciously about her past as she was extremely young when everything happened. At first, her relationship between her adoptive father and herself was a little bit strained, seeing as she obviously had a distrust in male authoritative figures. And as she grew older, she began to ask more questions about her family and about where she had come from. And it was here that she learned about the actions of her father and it had shocked her. She had so many questions that her adoptive family could not answer. And so this led to her eventually meeting up with the girl who had looked after her for 18 months, Renzi. When they met, Renzi was overjoyed to see her, all grown up now. I mean, she was around 12 years old. She was, however, a little shocked to realize that Nina spoke only English and also to see how very different she was compared to the two-year-old that she had initially met in the hall. After all that time that had elapsed, the two were quite shy around one another at first. When they got talking though, Nina had asked Renzi about her father and her mother and the two had spoken and connected about their past. Nina was saddened by the way in which Renzi was treated. Although both girls live a life so very different today, Renzi for me is the definition of resilience and strength. 
Even through all the trauma she was dealing with, she was kind and caring towards the child of her perpetrator. She survived living in a hole big enough for only two adults and a child to lie down in for 18 months. She basically raised a toddler. She took every beating, every assault, and still came out stronger. After being found, Renzi was so thankful to be back outside and reunited with her family. She was 15 years old at the time she was discovered. And like other teenagers, she soon grew fond of going to the movies, listening to music, going shopping, and just enjoying life as it should be. Throughout this time, she still remained incredibly respectful, with beautiful manners and extreme gratitude for all those that had helped and supported her along her journey. Although she was placed in an English school in Cape Town, she went on to finish her remaining years and matriculate. During her holidays, she would return home to her family on the farm. The more she visited home and the more she visited her family, the more she realized that this was where her heart was. And so after attending counseling, a place of safety, school and a developmental program in Cape Town, she returned home to Hermanus. She then went on to study at a college in Hermanus and she aimed to become a teacher and a caregiver to young children. She had said, I want to become a grade R teacher. I want to give other children what I got from Jenny. When I'm with Jenny, I feel safe. No one will touch me. People support me. I talk to my psychologist about everything. On a psychological front, she is constantly looking towards the future and she no longer feels sad or emotional. She returned shortly after everything with Jenny to the hole where she was kept and it gave her the chance to gain closure for that period of her life. She was and remains determined to put her past behind her. She doesn't hold any anger in her heart for Johannes, and she said eight years after the abduction that she had just one question for him. She wanted to know why he chose her to take, and she hopes that one day she will be allowed to ask him that. In 2014, she was engaged and she had just given birth to a beautiful baby girl. She lives on the farm surrounded by her friends and family, and she is happy. She is so thankful to be a mother and to have a partner that understands her past and loves and accepts her. She is a true inspiration, and so I think it is only fitting that I end her episode with her own words. When asked if she had any advice for other victims of violent crimes, she had said, Do whatever it takes to stay alive. You're special and your life is worth something. No matter what others may think or say, all women and children are important. Thank you for joining me on yet another difficult episode and thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to Renzi and Nina's story. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!